We're continuing today in our sixth of seventh lesson from a book by Philip Keller titled Lessons from a Sheepdog. And this little book has really become powerful to me. I have picked up so many truths out of this book, and it is such a, such a good um, lesson for us and the lessons that we've learned. And, um, and I hope that you've enjoyed it as well. Um, I know it seems to be like a lot of reading, and I hope that doesn't uh, insult anyone that we read uh, out of a book. But, you know, sometimes you just have to get another person's perspective. And when an author writes as good as he's been writing, and he picks up on God's truths the way he has, it's just, um, it's just worth sharing. And I've just been blessed by it, and it just seems like what's what the Lord has asked me to lead on my heart for this church. So you have a summary ahead of you, right there in front of you, and you can read through it now or, or later. But, but just to let you know, we've had three, uh, five lessons at this point. Um, last, to begin with, was a, sheep, or was a border collie. And uh, she was in the, in the wrong hands for the first lesson. She was in the city life, and she wasn't able to do the things she needed to do as a sheepdog. And she got into a lot of trouble, and thus she didn't have a lot of value. Uh, and that's just the way we are when we're in the wrong hands of the enemy. Uh, we're not a lot of value to anybody when we're following Satan's rule. And uh, so we have to be uh, freed from being in the wrong hands, as last would. Then, then the second week we talked about being set free to follow. She had to be set free, but not to follow her rules, but to follow the master's rules. And when she did that, she learned what freedom really was, free to follow. And uh, like we have in godly boundaries as well, and how important that we live under godly boundaries. And then number three, she learned about trusting God. And that's what Aubrey's going to learn about over the next few months, is learning how to trust God with your very life, with your very sustenance, with everything that you are. And the, the thing that we picked up out of this that was so important is that the more we learn to trust God, the more God can trust us. Amen? The, more, the better steward that we are of God's blessings, of the, God, of the things that God has blessed us with, the more faithful we are with those things, the more he will trust us with more things. Not only in this life, but in the life of eternity. And that's a blessing. So the more we trust God, the more he can trust us. And then lesson four, we talked about the delight of obedience and what it is to obey the Lord. And obeying the Lord is not a burden. Obeying the Lord is a blessing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of good in obedience. Uh, you love God, and when you love God, you obey God. And that's the proof that you love God is by your, your level of obedience. And, uh, and so there's a delight in obedience. And then last week we talked about the test of faithfulness. And this is the one that probably all of us struggle with a lot, and that is that we're so often our greatest strength becomes our greatest weakness and that we rely so much on our own personality or our own strength, our own ability to do, that we maybe miss the mark sometimes when God gives us a, a lesson of faithfulness. And, and as Lass's biggest problem was, her problem was that she loved to be in her master's presence. And she had a hard time staying, doing what he asked her to do while he went off and did something else. And that we also have that same problem maybe in our life when the Lord gives us a task to do. We think that when he then puts us at a task, then he goes off perceivably to do something more important perceivably. We look at it as like God has forgotten about us. And then we panic and we think, well, we have to change. We've got to, we have to chase after him or we have to go, we have to move ourselves and we have to take ourselves out of his purpose many times when we do that. And, and some of those are just a sheer test of our faithfulness. Are we going to be faithful to what the Lord has asked us to do? 
And then we also see this, that, that when we do that, when we test ourselves, God is also um, bringing his faithfulness to us. Because as we are faithful in guarding our pen or doing what we're asked to do, God never asks you to do something that he will allow you to fail in. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? God never calls you to failure. He will test you. You will go through struggle. You will go through sacrifice. But he will never call you to something where you will fail. It may seem like we're failing right now. But understand here something that's very important. We're still in the middle of the story. Your chapter is still being written. You don't know what the next page is going to be like when you flip the page. You don't know. Job did not know when he was going through the severe adversity and testing what it was going to be like at the end of his life. But when we get to the end of Job's life, we see that Job had twice as much as what he lost because he was faithful and he, he passed the test of faithfulness. And that's what we need to do. We are in that role. Stay where we're at and be faithful. And that was last week's lesson. So today... We're moving on uh, to a lesson called Love and Discipline. And uh, Love and Discipline. And, and we, we find out now that Lass had been on the job for quite a period of time. And he and the farmer had developed a really good relationship. They, uh, they are valued each other. They are, Lass is now a valued co-worker on the farm. The farm wouldn't operate without Lass. Without Lass's functioning, the farm would be inoperable because they have developed such a good relationship, and it's a very successful relationship. And uh, today we're going to talk about the love and discipline part of the relationship and how they intertwine in life. And as strange as it may seem, we really can't have love one without the other. You can't have love without discipline. You cannot have love without discipline. They go hand in hand, like peas and carrots, <laughs> like a hand and a glove. Love and discipline go together. And it may seem strange that you think that, but as we go through this, we're going to see how if we're going to let love's action become complete, because love is a verb, it is a moving word, it is an action word, and, and when we see love becoming complete, it always has an element of discipline with it. So we're going to talk about that today. But let, let's talk about love first, because love is a really nice thing to talk about. So we're going to pick up the story in love and discipline. It will be obvious by now that the mutual affection established between Lass and myself was very precious to both of us. It seemed to me that at times that our intimate relationship was much, much more than merely a man and a dog, more than a shepherd and a sheepdog, more than efficient co-workers. We had become special friends. With her keen perception, sensitive instincts, and acute intelligence, Lass had a capacity not only to understand my commands, but even to anticipate my wishes. It was this unusual awareness that made her such a remarkable co-worker. Lass herself was, totally fulfilled, was a totally fulfilled companion who reveled in all her responsibilities. I sometimes thought of our overall relationship as a triad of triumph between master, friend, and flock. All of it possible because of the loving cooperation of a border collie. And this is precisely the, the relationship that Christ desires with us. More than anything, he wants me to be his companion, his co-worker, his friend in helping to tend his flock. 
Now, I really like what the author talks about here and that there's a triad relationship between the farmer, last the sheepdog, and the sheep. There's a relationship here between all three of these entities. And if there was a gap in the relationship of any one of these parties, the farm operation would be ineffective. It wouldn't work if there was a gap. There has to be a constant agreement and unity amongst all parties if this is going to be, an, if they're going to meet their common goal. The obvious relationship is certainly between Lass and the farmer. And that's most apparent. We've been studying that. And we've touched about that over the past few weeks. And, and, uh, but there, and there's also a relationship between the farmer and the sheep. And that relationship between the farmer and the sheep is important for these reasons. Because the farmer in this particular situation is our Heavenly Father. God is our farmer. He is the great shepherd. All right, That's Jesus. He's the great shepherd. And the, the responsibility that the farmer had for Lass and the sheep was that he was the overall provider. He had overall responsibility for the farm. He had everything. He was their uh, provider of food and water. He was their provider of life. He was their sustainer. Uh, he was their protector. He was there to um, keep the fences mended and the pens in good working order. Uh, he set up proper boundaries for the uh, last to operate in to guard the sheep. And he sustained those boundaries. He kept, and that, that boundaries are there to protect. They're there to protect the sheep from getting outside the care of, of his care, outside of his provision. They're also to keep the uh, predators out from getting into the flock. So he puts up boundaries. He puts up fences to keep out the predators. He's to protect them from getting lost, basically to protect them from themselves. Because sheep aren't known to be the smartest animals in the world. And they have a propensity to wander off looking for the greener grass. Wow, sounds like me. <laughs> I have the propensity to wander off looking for the greener grass. And when I do that, what am I risking? If, God, if, I'm, not, if I'm outside of godly boundaries when I'm looking for that greener grass, I'm risking a lot of serious consequences in my life. And likewise, you would as well. So the shepherd or the... the uh, farmer is responsible for that. He's also responsible to properly take care of Lass. See, if Lass would become injured, then Lass couldn't do his job on the farm. So he has to be the, the provider of Lass's protection, and he has to uh, give her the proper food and water and health care, and, and he's got to be responsible for her overall social context of life, and he's got to be uh, also the provider of enjoyment for Lass. He's got to take care of her. He's got to maintain her. A happy worker is a productive worker. Amen? And then probably more. There's probably a lot more things that this farmer had to take care of, but, but that's not the intent of the lesson. I just wanted you to understand that the, that the farmer has responsibility to the sheep and to Lass as being the provider. And just like God, our Father is our provider. But then there's a relationship between Lass and the sheep. And this is something that I think is very important as well because the relationship between Lass and the sheep is very important that we understand that. Now, understand that Lass is a dog, and dogs have sharp teeth, and they have big bites or big barks, and they're fast, they're quick, 
they're intimidating. And these sheep are defenseless against the dog. A sheep cannot defend himself against a dog. So when Lass first gets on the farm and she goes running out there in her exuberance and her joy and her effort of doing the work, she scares the sheep. The sheep have no relationship with this dog. This dog is a predator to her, to them, and they're, they're afraid. They think this dog is out to hurt her. And it took some time for the sheep to learn to trust Lass. It took time for the sheep to know that Lass had no harm meant no harm for them. Lass would come out and bark and, and nip at them if they were not behaving, if they were moving outside of the boundaries or, or not staying in the flock or not being herded properly. And, and so Lass's job was to intimidate, was to, to guard and to, to herd them together. And it was his job to do that. And it wasn't until that the sheep fully recognized that Lass's intentions were not to harm them was life on the farm productive. So it didn't take long, and as soon as the sheep saw the dog running out to them, they kind of anticipated they better get back with the flock. They better get back in where they're protected by protection of numbers. If they're left alone, the sheep, the dog is going to come after them a little bit. And so they learn, and with that, then they become productive and they can move around. So what does that have to do with a bunch of people sitting in church on a Sunday morning? Well, I see a, a very significant corollary relationship with obviously the sheep farmer as God our Father and his overall all responsibility to be our provider and to take care of our needs, and as, as we've already talked about. And then I see the relationship between the pastor and the church members, the pastor being the sheepdog and the church members being the sheep. Now, the sheep didn't really recognize the master as much as they recognized the sheepdog. Because in the sheep's mind, maybe the master wasn't even there. Just like maybe our relationship to God, I don't see God. You don't see God. You may see visions of God. You may see visions of angels. You may see visions of things. But none of us have seen the face of God. But yet we know God is there, don't we? We know that he's evident. We know that he's there. We, and we know that by faith. And so by faith, we know that God, our Father, is here. He's providing. He's protecting. He's our sustainer. What we do see, though, like what the sheep saw, was this crazy little dog that would go around nipping at him all the time, barking and making all kinds of ruckus. And that is what they got used to seeing. And as church members, then, what you get used to seeing is a pastor that is doing his job to help guard and, and guide the flock that he's been given charge over. And not until, it's not just like the sheep and the, and the dog, not until the sheep learned to trust the dog was it effective, so as the, the, the church membership and church attenders learning to trust the pastor. Please understand that a pastor is not out to hurt anyone. It's not the pastor's intention to come in and say sharp words to hurt. He may bark, he may bite, but understand he's just doing the will of the master. The master blew the whistle, gave the command, said left, said right, stay, sit, go, whatever. And Lass was listening to the master to help her guide the flock. And it was as Lass obeyed the master, did she properly obey and did she properly then guide the flock. In the same way, a pastor, a godly pastor that's listening to the voice of God is doing his job in guarding and guiding the flock. 
So, as, so we have to understand, and that's so important that we recognize pastors with a responsibility and a duty to do his job and that the people then would understand that and would come under a godly authority. This does not mean the pastor's always right. This is not a dictatorship. Pastors make, make mistakes, last made mistakes. And we're going to talk about that's where the discipline comes in a little bit. We're talking about the love side of it. And as we do all this, what we find is that we find that all of the relationships here in this triad is all based on the concept of love. Love guided the master's protection of last. Last loved the master in return. And then love was then mastered or motivated last to take care of the sheep. And then as the sheep got to trust last, then the sheep might have even loved last. But it's all based upon love. And so we have to understand that Jesus is coming back for a church, right? He's coming back for a church. He's not coming back for individuals. If you read the Word, the Word always talks about Christ is coming back for his bride. The bride is the church. And the church is structured with an organization. And the organization is the pastor, is the sheepdog. And we are the sheep. And as we come under authority, godly authority, then we can become an efficient flock. And God is then coming back, Jesus is coming back for a bride or a church without spot or wrinkle, a perfected church. He's not coming back for individuals. Individuals are in the church. He's coming back for the church. So we just need to know that. With all that said, trust your pastor like sheep trusted the last. And again, this doesn't give the pastor dictatorship. It just gives him godly authority that he's responsible to live under. He will be guarded and he will be, he will be judged appropriately. Let the Lord judge the pastor. <laughs> Let the Lord judge him because it's going to be severe and it's going to be drastic. I don't care who your pastor. It could be me. It could be another church. I don't care. But wherever you're at, let trust the pastor to the best that you can and pray for your pastor. Pray that God would hear his, that he would hear God's voice and that he would be guided by that and that he would have all of that. So let's continue on in our book so we don't get too far behind. Love for the master is not some sentimental emotion that sweeps over the soul in moments of special piety. Love for Christ is a deliberate setting of the will to carry out his commands at any cost. It is, delight, it is the delight of accomplishing our Father's highest purposes no matter how challenging. The end result of such conduct is to bring sweet satisfaction to the Good Shepherd. Because of such single-minded service, we sense his approval of our behavior. We know of a surety that we are loved and appreciated, and the ultimate end is that others benefit. Others are blessed. Others are cared for. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 14. He says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. And it should be pointed out emphatically, to lay down one's life for another means to put the interests and wishes of others ahead of one's own. It implies that to obey Christ and carry out his intentions are more desirable than doing my own thing. And that is so important. It simply is not natural for us to love God or others in the dramatic discipline of a laid-down life. We are a selfish, self-serving people. We have the strange and worldly idea that to be of lowly service is to be used or abused. And that's not godly. When we know that love is what it is, is to lay down one's life for another, 
that's a hard thing to do sometimes. You know, the, the, to lay down your life for another in a, in, a, in a sacrificial death, in some ways that may be easier because it's a one-time occurrence. You, you, you sacrifice your life for another man physically one time, and then you're in heaven. And then, then life is good for you. But to lay down your life for a man or a woman over and over and over and over again can be hard to do. It's not an easy thing to do. But it is a commandment that we are to do that. And, and we are to set ourselves apart in that doing it. And, and that's proving our love to God is that we are willing to lay down our life. And we are God's friends, it says, if you do what I command. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his wonderful light. And what's so interesting about this passage is it says that we are to declare the praises of him. Declaring the praises of God means I'm sharing my praises with other people. I'm not just declaring them to myself. There's no value in declaring them to myself. It's when I declare something. It's I'm living my life in front of other people. I'm declaring the promises of God and the praises of God who called me to this chosen life of, of being a royal priesthood. And that is exactly what it means where it says, God, where, we, where greater love has none, no, no one than this, and that is to lay his, doubt, his life down for another person. When I am living my life in front of other people authentically and truly, declaring the praises of the Lord day after day after day, loving the Lord unashamedly with boldness, I am laying my life down for another person because now they are watching my example. They're watching me. They're watching me. And they're listening and they're watching and they're doing as I've been instructed to do, then they also can do as well because I'm being a good example for them. That is laying my life down. Jesus loved us so much. We see that in two two very specific passages. John 3:16 and 17, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That is an example of how Jesus loved us. We see that he loved us first. Before I was worthy of anything, he loved me. His love is so real and so unending. And then turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. It says, again, what Jesus' love is, and then it talks about what our love is. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. That is learning how to lay your life down over and over. When you allow love to work in you as a verb, as an actions and truth, that is how we are being Christ-like. That's how Christ laid down his love us. Let's continue on. Continuously, I was giving my life to Lass. I gave her my strength, my attention, my affection, my loyalty, my friendship, my very life. She, in turn, reciprocated this outpouring by giving back to me her vitality, her vigor, her enthusiasm, her cooperation, her love, and her loyalty. 
But here's where it came down. If it could have stopped there, it would have been a great story. But this is where the hard part of discipline comes in. There were times on which Lass did break faith. There were days when she did not stay steadfast. There were many distractions that came along which drew her away from her line of duty. Love so betrayed demands discipline to be restored. There were grievous interludes for, me, for her, for me, and for the flock. To correct her and to mend the breach between us, there had to be discipline. This was not easy or pleasant, but it was absolutely essential. I loved Lass far too much to let her revert back to her old wretched lifestyle. I was too fond of her to allow her to waste her energies for naught. She was made for great things, intended for lofty service, so both of us would have to suffer to set her straight. Discipline is never pleasant. The correction that comes with love causes pain both for the administrator and the recipient. Many of us prefer to push it all aside. We find it easier to simply brush bad behavior to one side, acting as if it did not matter. But true love demands discipline. If there is to be mutual trust, integrity, and loyalty again, then it must involve some suffering for us to learn this lesson. It was not easy to punish Lass. After all, she was my friend. It demanded self-discipline on my part to insist that she per perform properly up to her full potential. Wow. D discipline, it is, it is a hard thing. Love requires discipline. When a breach occurs, discipline must be there. And it's what we said at the very beginning. Love and discipline come together as a pair. We cannot have one ultimately without the other. And since we live in an imperfect world, we are going to make mistakes. Sin abounds in the world that we live in. I struggle with sin every day, and so do you. And you're going to make a mistake. And the only way for, for us to be restored, the only way that we really tr know the true, truly know Jesus' love for us is that he is faithful to discipline us. Amen? It's a hard word. But it's love, and it's love abounding. True love requires discipline, as difficult as it, as it may seem at the time. Here's an equation for you. I'm an engineer. I like equations. Write this down. True love plus true discipline equals total and complete restoration. True love plus true discipline equals total and complete restoration. One without the other makes an equation not correct. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11, Paul confirms it in this passage. It says, And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? That's the key word, and live. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This 
is not a hard negative word. This is a word of hope and love because when God disciplines us, he disciplines us to life. He disciplines us while we have time to respond, while we have time to react, while we have time to repent. If God's discipline only came at the judgment, it would be too late. Because once you take your last breath of air here and you have not taken care of the areas of discipline in your life, then God's judgment is so just that he has no choice but to discipline you then. And if he disciplines, disciplines you then, it's not good, folks. It's not good. For years, there has been prominent, there has been a prominent uh, teaching in the church, an unbalanced overemphasis upon the love of God. Now hear me on this, because this, I don't want anybody to be confused here. God loves you. He loves me. No question about it. Anybody question God's love? There has been a universal tendency to teach that Christ is so compassionate, so kind, that he does not discipline us for wrongdoing. There is the false impression that any old thing can go on, that God will simply forgive and forget all about it. This simply is not so. There is a price to pay for our perverseness. There is a discipline we deserve for wrongdoing. There is the master's demand that we be faithful in service, serious in our responsibility to him and to others. We distort the true character of Christ if we assert that he will merely wink at wrong. He is grieved when we deliberately disobey his commands and selfishly ignore his wishes. We distort the true character of Christ if we assert that he will merely wink at wrong. Wow, it's vitally important that we understand what this means. This doesn't mean that we, can, that we have to be perfect. We're not talking perfection. We're talking forgiven. We're not talking about a life that does not sin. We're talking about a life that is quick to repent of sin. If a person messes up, you mess up. You're going to mess up. Don't worry about it. You're going to mess up. But, but repent. Come back to God. Come back. Understand that you cannot, that God's love is so great that like the master, he wasn't going to let last revert back to his wretched ways. He had to discipline her. For those that do that and hear the discipline of the, of the Lord and feel the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that are, that are responsible to take care of that, there's life in that, folks. That's where the life of Christ comes in. There are consequences, however, for willful and deliberate sin. Make no mistake about it. Don't let the love wins mentality come through in you. Um, God's proof of his love is not anything goes. His proof of his love is boundaries and rules and consequences. That's his proof. And he says, I love you so much. Discipline is necessary. And it's your, de and it's your determination to obey is required to prove that you love back. Wow, it's, I, I love that. I love that. Let me get into one hard thing we talked about in Sunday school class today. We actually read this verse, Second, Second Thessalonians. Aubrey, I have a hard time saying that word too. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut off from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now, I, listen, folks. God does not punish out of anger. He does not do this because he's angry. He does it because he's grieved. He does it because his, just, his justice system has set it up this way, and he cannot break it. It is his will that all of us would be saved and all of us would come to an understanding of who God is. And here's the good news this morning, that I am not going to leave you with any sense of hopelessness at all. 
Jackie, if you would please come, we'll finish this up. We see Peter betrayed, when he betrayed his master before the night of his crucifixion, it took one look of Jesus to shatter Peter's soul. He went out into utter darkness to break down in tears and remorse, and in burning shame he was reduced from a tough, cursing fellow to a soul-shattered penitent. Yet this man was so swiftly restored after the master's res resurrection, he was a servant spoken to with this, such a reassurance beside the lake where Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Three times over in a triad of tenderness, the bonds of trust, love, and loyalty were reestablished between Jesus and his friend. Like glass, we shrink back from the discipline of God. We find it grievous. We would rather set it aside. It cannot be. It is for our best. It is for our benefit. It is for the eventual blessing of others whose lives we touch. Instinctively, we know we deserve discipline. We know the master would not be true to himself or to us if he simply let our misconduct slide into sinister selfishness. His discipline, he disciplines because he cares, because he loves, because he heals. And with this reassurance comes renewed joy. There is total restoration. There is sheer delight in once again doing his bidding. Folks, there is life, there is joy in following our shepherd. Amen? Love. He loves us unrestrained. He loves us unequivocally. He loves us to the very end. No question about that. But his love requires discipline. And his discipline is only for our benefit. It's only for our benefit. It's only for our, our, our prosperity that he disciplines us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let me ask you this morning, are you willing to accept God's love through his discipline? Are you okay with this? Do you understand the necessity of them being tied together? I heard it said by a really good pastor, and he said this. I'll think of his name in a minute. He said this, many times we want the crown, but we don't want the cross. We will not have the crown, folks, without the cross. You cannot gain the crown until you bear the cross. And that bearing the cross is going to come through some discipline because he loves us so much. He cares about us so much. He's so fond of us. Where's your heart this morning? Where is your heart this morning? Would you close your eyes with me and just examine a little bit your heart? Let me give you a little analogy of two different men as your eyes are closed and you're examining your heart. Two different men. They were both disciples, actually. They were both disciples. One of them was Peter and one of them was Judas. Now, some have heard this analogy before, but just listen. Close your eyes and listen and see which heart you are. Peter and Judas were, one of, were two of 12 disciples that followed Jesus for three years. Jesus taught them both the same. Same teacher, same message, different outcome. Why? Because Peter had a heart that would yield to Jesus. Peter was rebuked a couple different times, heavily by Jesus. Peter was actually called Satan by Jesus. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. 
Peter had every opportunity to rebel against Jesus and say, no, I'm not going to put up with you. You're, you're, too, you're, hard. you're too hard for me, Jesus. I can't handle this. Peter had every right to do that. But Peter's heart was a heart that was tender, a heart that would listen, a heart that would accept discipline. And as a result of that, Peter was called the little rock, or he was called the rock that Jesus was going to build his church upon. What happened to Judas? Same teacher, same message, different heart. What happened to, what happened to Judas? Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas hung himself. And today, Judas is not with God. Because of Judas' sin, the Bible says Judas is in eternal damnation and punishment today. Now listen, folks. We have the same choices in front of us today. Are you willing to continue to be disciplined? Now, there, most of us here are Christians already. I understand that. But are you willing to continue to be disciplined? Are you willing to continue that process of purification, sanctification, growing closer to Jesus every day? Or do you think that I'm there, I'm good enough, and I'm going to make it in? Oh, Jesus, help us. Father, I come before you in Jesus' name. And, Lord, I just deliver the message today. I'm the mailman. And I've heard your word today, Lord, and I've just delivered the mail. So, Lord, I pray that each person as they evaluate now this message and as their hearts are, are either being tenderized by the love of discipline or being hardened by the lies of the enemy, I pray, Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would do the work. Do the work. As your eyes are closed this morning, where are you at? I just have to ask the question one more time. If you just want to, one more time, show the Lord that you're committed to Him. You want to have that disciplined heart. Would you just raise your hand with me and say, Lord, that's me. I want that. Holy Spirit, see me. See me, Holy Spirit. See me in that. If you have a hard time raising your hand in this, I just ask you to look at your heart. Father, I just come before you in Jesus' name, and I pray, Lord, that you would do your work in all of us. Lord, we receive your discipline. We receive your love. Lord, we pray that this message would be a message today that would be thought over over the next week or so. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would bring back some of these points. Lord, that we're not here for the spectacular like we talked about last week, but we're here for the true faithfulness of a steadfast heart. We're not looking for the, the spectacular of emotion. We're looking for the steadfastness of who you are. Thank you, Jesus. Father, now I just, as we go to our homes today, I pray your blessing. I pray your protection. I pray your sustenance on us. Thank you for your mercy and thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.